0: Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. You do know what we're celebrating. Freedom. Freedom. And we're celebrating July 4th. And you know what that's about, right? You, you know the occasion that brought this holiday about. We're celebrating the signing of the Declaration of Independence. That happened on July 4, 1776. And there was no other nation that was founded quite like this nation. Let let me just read to you, because you may not take time this season to reflect back and and get the declaration. I won't read the whole thing, but let me just read a bit of it to you. The reason we're celebrating begins this way. It's a unanimous declaration of 13 United States, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people, that would be us, to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, that would be the King of England. And to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which, listen, the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, A decent respect to the opinions of mankind require that we should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. And then follows a laundry list, over two dozen reasons why we needed to break with Great Britain. But first and foremost among them, the authors of this document and the signers said they were compelled because they saw... Freedom was the word of the day in the laws of nature and of nature's God. A little bit later on in the document, it talks about the powers of those that are governed. And they're granted by God. And the document ends up by referring back again. It opens with an appeal and it ends with an appeal to what they call the supreme judge. There is no other nation on the face of the earth, never has been, not likely to ever be. No other nation has ever been founded or has had in its founding documents such a clear expression of dependence on God. And we're talking about the God that's revealed in the pages of your Bible. That's who they were talking about. For their models of how they were going to set this thing up. Our founders looked back in time. And they looked to the best of ancient Greece and Rome. To the great senate of Rome. And to the democracy of Greece. They looked back to the days of Cicero and Cato. They looked back to the golden age of Greece's democracy. And from ancient Greece and Rome, they pulled the very best models that they could. In fact, it's a fact of history that most of that summer of 1776 as they were talking about this and then later on in the 1780s when they formed the Constitution, most of those summers that they spent drafting these documents, they spent in research, in researching out and, and reading the constitutions and, and the documents of other nations to find out what is the best for us. It's what they spent the bulk of their time doing. And they decided that they could do no better than to look back to the classical age of Greece and Rome for the model. But for the morality and for the underpinning that would support all of this great republic that they modeled on ancient Greece and ancient Rome, for the morality of it all, and the help that they needed to make it work, they looked to the God of the Bible. That's what they're talking about when they talk about nature's God. Our nation has always, has always had its national prophets. And their function has always been to remind us how we started and to call us back when we stray too far. One of the earliest was Benjamin Franklin, it was the Constitutional Convention. The war had been fought and won for independence. But then how to govern this thing was the question. And so they met for a Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. And after two long months, they were deadlocked. And, and the anger on two sides of an issue had grown to the point that they could not come to any decision And it looked like the whole thing was going to have to be scrapped. There were even delegates to that convention that were beginning to pack up and head home. Because they said, we have failed. We won the war, but we don't know how to govern ourselves. And there were people that were calling and saying, why don't we approach the King of England and go back again? Because we don't know what we're doing. They'd reached that bad of a deadlock. The deadlock was... Large states versus small states. And the large states felt like it was not fair that the smaller states would have equal representation and have equal say on how they conducted their business, formed their laws. And the smaller states were afraid of being gobbled up by the large states, the, the wealthy states, Virginia, New York. And so there was this deadlock between the delegates, and they could not decide who is going to win this thing. And on a Friday afternoon late when it was very apparent that they were going nowhere and that the thing was unraveling fast, they heard from an unlikely source. A prophetic voice came from an unlikely source, Dr. Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, easily the oldest by many decades to attend that convention With with his typical Glasses perched on the end of his nose. He asked for permission to speak. He was too frail to really stand for very long, so he sat. But he rebuked the entire delegation. And he told them, I know why we're at this deadlock. It's because we failed at something that we ought not have failed at. He said, I told you at the beginning of this thing and you wouldn't listen to me that we should begin every day with prayer, and we haven't. Now you need to understand that this prophetic voice was coming from a man who was easily the least Christian and the least spiritual of the whole lot. He was not known as a great Christian, Dr. Franklin. He was known as an intellectual, as an inventor, as a writer, as a publisher, as a diplomat. But he wasn't a great Christian. But he said, I told you at the beginning we should have been praying. And we've gone all this time, weeks now, and we've not prayed. Listen to what he told them. In this situation of this assembly, groping, as it were, in the dark to find a truth, scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sirs, that we have not hitherto once thought or humbly applied to the Father of lights to guide our understanding. He rebuked them for not praying. He went on and he said, if a sparrow falls to the ground and God does not know it, is it possible that an empire could rise without his help? He further encouraged them to pray as he he finished his little rebuke. He says, I have lived a long time And he said, the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs the affairs of people, and we need to pray. And so he's always, the Lord sent a prophetic voice just when we need it. General Washington was one of those prophetic voices. He had served as a commander, he had served as president, and he had decided that the days of his public service were over, and he meant it this time, he would refuse to be called back into service. He was going to retire. And he gave what they call his farewell address, and he was a little bit worried to tell the truth. He had seen so much conflict in his four years as president, in the Congress and in the country, that he was a little bit worried that the thing might not outlive him even and that the whole experiment would fail. George Washington had a, a quality that endeared him to the people that, that followed him. There were two things that he always did when there was a crisis, and they loved him for it. One was that when he was involved in a crisis, he would always indicate that, uh, and admit his own limitations and his own shortcomings and say, I may not be the man for the job here. And they loved him for that, but there was another thing that he always did when there was a crisis, and he was always very careful to ask for God's help. And so in his farewell address, it is his strongest word to the nation that he's afraid may crack up if it's not careful. And he says this, he was not the most educated of the founders, and so he always tried to make up with it with flowery speech. But he said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion, and by that he meant Christianity, and morality are the indispensable supports. He went on to say, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail at the exclusion of religious principle. In other words, you're not going to do the right things if you're not rightly related to God. He cautioned our nation, and like a prophetic voice, he called us back. Abraham Lincoln was another prophetic voice, wasn't he? His second inaugural address, it reads like a sermon. Some people call it the National Sermon. When you go into the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., there's, of course, the great statue of Lincoln seated And it's a monument. But off to the right side, as you face it, there's a portion of his his second inaugural address. He would only live a couple more weeks. But he delivered in that second inaugural what people have called the National Sermon. I remember going into that memorial, and, and I had forgotten that it was supposed to be carved into that wall. And as I stood there and read it, There were goosebumps all over and the hair stood up on the back of my neck because I realized that in that second inaugural address, Lincoln was a prophet. Because he talks about this war may not end until every single life that has been enslaved is paid for with a life of an American soldier. It turns out that the number of slaves that were brought here from Africa, about 600,000 almost directly matches the number of people that fell on the battlefield. He was prophetic. But in that that inaugural address, one of his last great public statements, he said this, and you can just hear the, the questions in his mind. He can't quite figure out what God is up to, but he knows God has been involved. He says both sides read the same Bible in this war, north and south, both pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It's a mystery, isn't it? It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. He's talking about slavery. But let us judge not that we be not judged. He's quoting scripture. And then he goes on to say the prayers of both sides cannot be answered, and that of neither has been fully answered. and He wraps it up by saying the Almighty has His own purposes. It's prophetic. He ends it with a part that you have probably memorized in grade school with malice toward none, with charity for all. He's hearkening back to 1 Corinthians 13, the charity chapter, the love chapter. With firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we're in and to bind up our nation's wounds. He talks about God through that thing. It's a national sermon. It's a prophetic caution to us. There have been other people that God has raised up to call our nation back to be that prophetic voice. Dr. King, a Baptist preacher who did not believe in the exclusion of church from state affairs and we're glad he didn't. He recalled the Old Testament prophets over and over again. When he would call for justice to flow like a never-ending stream, he's quoting the minor prophets. We've always had our national prophets. And I think that's because we're different than every other nation. I believe that. And we started differently. A foreign analyst came to America in the early mid-century, the 1800s, Frenchman by the name of Alex de Tocqueville he came and stayed for a long time trying to figure out what this new nation was all about and what made it work what made it tick and he went everywhere everywhere and talked to everybody he went to factories and churches and state houses and he went everywhere trying to figure out what made us different he ended up by saying this he said no doubt about it America is great But America is great because America is good. We're living right now, you and I, in those times that the Apostle Paul said we would be living in. He called them perilous times, difficult times. How many know this is a difficult time? And there are an awful lot of things that are going on and there are challenges that face us that we've never seen before. We live in these difficult times. We see all kinds of troubling signs around us, don't we? I can't tell you what might happen even within the next few months of this election season and what might follow that. I can't tell you what might happen. But the challenges that we face right now are tremendous, nationally and internationally, and and our nation seems to be drifting somehow. But I can tell you this, that every other time that we've drifted and messed up and gotten it wrong, I can tell you that we've always turned it around and eventually gotten it right. Whereas the old Shaker tune says, we've always come around right. And that gives me hope. Even when it comes to huge failures and national sins, we've eventually gotten it right. Take slavery. That is our great national sin. That ought not have happened. That ought not have happened. I've told you before about a series of recordings that I've got that I can't finish of slaves, former slaves that were made when they were in their 80s and 90s recalling what life was like to be a slave. I can't finish them because you listen to them and you hear those people's story of what that was like and you end up saying, my God, what happened to those people? And it sends shivers up and down your spine to think that actually happened it did but slavery was one of our great national sins at the cost of 600,000 plus lives as I said that's what it cost us to get that right again plus the lives of those slaves that were forever changed and has changed the life of every American of color since then but we finally got it right A great expense, an expense that's still being paid out, but we've gotten some of it right. We've gotten into wars that we probably should have left alone. First World War, we put our nose where it should not have been, probably, because we made deals we should not have made and should have left alone and did that because we were trying to act like all the rest of the nations and we're not like the rest. But that war killed thousands and thousands of Americans and others. It wrecked thousands of men who served and suffered the horrors of mechanized warfare for the very first time. You see, up to that point, most wars had been fought for centuries by armies running at each other with pointed sticks, but now there's, atomic weapon, there's automatic weapons that could mow down thousands of men like you'd mow down tall grass, and there are bombs that could shake the earth with terrifying force, and there were chemicals that were unleashed. And all of that left even the survivors, those that survived, with with what they called shell shock, a kind of periodic madness that today we've given another name, PTSD. And that was an awful thing. It was an awful war. The most awful thing about it was it didn't change anything. Everybody went back the way they were before. Only worse. And it only set the stage for another unspeakable kind of hate that just 20 years later would be let loose on the world. It would destroy millions upon millions upon millions. And that was bad. But eventually, we learned as a nation and we tried to do good again. Talk about the depression. There's some people here that might remember a bit of it, but after that first war, we had more missteps. This time, it was tinkering with the economy because everybody was so greedy, they wanted to squeeze out a little bit more and a little bit more, and so the Depression resulted, and we crippled as a nation under the weight of debts that would never be paid, and that was bad, but the the human cost was unspeakable. And I know that because my father was a kid during those years, and he told me things. He told me what it did to him. It scarred him for life. His brothers and sisters, he told me a story. One day he could smell the most wonderful smell. They were very, very poor. The depression had crippled them. My grandfather could not find work and couldn't find work. There were people with college degrees sweeping streets. He couldn't find work. And they were hungry all the time, and he said he smelled the smell of roasting potatoes and thought he was dreaming when he realized that everybody in the neighborhood, all the kids, adults, were running to a big place down by the river where the government had piled up heaps, stories high of potatoes. And they had doused them with kerosene and set them on fire because they wanted to keep the prices artificially high. And so they destroyed the food supply with hungry people all around. It was not a good thing. He said there were hundreds of people and the police were called to keep people away from taking the burning kerosene-soaked potatoes because they were hungry. And he said he never forgot being chased away by a policeman because he had snatched up a potato and was trying to stuff it in his mouth. Well, that left scars on people's lives, that kind of grinding poverty In his case, it caused his father to die an alcoholic. That's the way he got escape. And his mother, my grandmother, went insane with worry. And that was a bad time, but finally that got corrected too because we always seem to try and come around right and do the good thing. I think that French visitor was right when he said, America is great because America is good. But the rest of what he had to say was this. It was a warning, a caution. America is great because America is good. And he warned, if she ever stops trying to be good, she will stop being great. We celebrate freedom with July 4th, and we should. Freedom is a valuable thing. It must be an awful thing not to be free. I can't imagine I can tell you this, that there are many people, males in my family, that have been incarcerated. In fact, I'm one of the rare birds that wasn't. Probably just didn't get caught. But I remember going to visit cousins and brothers and others, uncles, different institutions, visiting day and waving through barred windows at them and all that nonsense. I remember what that's like, and I remember from an early age, those experiences told me one thing, I will never go in one of those cages. I will never let myself be put in one of those places. And to date, I haven't. But to lose my freedom would be the worst, wouldn't it? I think I would go insane. So freedom is a valuable thing. Freedom in our country is a wonderful thing. There's something even more wonderful than that. I want you to take just a moment to look at a scripture with me, and then we'll be out. But I'm thinking about John chapter 8, verse 31 through 36. Let me just quickly read it to you. It's where Jesus gives us a little riff on freedom. To the Jews who had believed in him. Verse 31 of John 8. To the Jewish people who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, to what I'm telling you, then you really are my disciples. We're very interested in our church about disciples right now. In fact, that's what Marcelo's beautiful picture is all about. It's reminding us that growth, natural growth, is what we should be about as followers. The word disciple means followers, apprentices of Christ. We should be growing ourselves and we should be investing our lives in the growth of some, at least one other person and helping them to grow in Christ. And and we're training that way with a group and we'll be talking a lot more about that. But that's what that's about. One plants one, growth, you see. Jesus here is talking about that, saying... If you hold to my teaching, then you really are my followers. I've got a feeling there's a whole bunch of people that profess to be Christians that don't hold to his teaching, and I've got a question whether they really are his followers on the basis of what he says. But he said, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. And then, and only then, once you're my disciple, once you're following me, once you're an apprentice who's making other apprentices, then you will know the truth. You'll really know the truth then. You'll have the real score, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, they're indignant now because of their pedigree. We are Abraham's children, descendants, and we've never been slaves of anybody. How then can you say we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, he's talking in a day when slavery is a serious business. And to be a slave was as awful as you can imagine and beyond it. It was more widespread. The difference between American slavery and ancient slavery is there was nobody back in those days saying it's not a good idea. Everybody thought it was a good idea. And so slavery was a serious business. And he says, I tell you the truth, everybody who slaves is, it sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. Do you realize what he's saying is when we come to Christ, we've been adopted? He's chosen us to be in his family. So if the son sets you free, and here's where he ends his riff on freedom, you will be free indeed. It's wonderful to be a free American, Amen? amen? I can't think of anywhere I would rather live, I've been in several places, and I can't help it. When I come back here, I always have the impression that was wonderful over there, but this is the best. And it's wonderful to be free in this wonderful free country. But it's more wonderful still to be set free by the sun. Freedom for Jesus is always connected to truth, isn't it? Then you will know the truth. You'll know the truth about the world when you follow hard after him. You'll know what's really going on out there. You won't need talking heads to tell you. You'll know the truth, he says, when you follow me about the world, about where it's headed, about how other people relate to you. You'll you'll know the truth. You see, truth is your ultimate happiness. That's the truth, that your ultimate happiness is not in somebody else's actions or what they do or don't do for you or to you, but it's in Christ. You'll know the truth about yourself. And when you know it and when you live it, you will be set free by that truth. Freedom is always connected to truth for him. And then finally, Jesus loves setting people free. You know, it's not our good works that set us free. It's not our great accomplishments that set us free. It's not our generosity. It's not our entitlement. It's not our good looks. It's not our stunning personalities that set us free. Because we don't earn freedom. It's a gift. The Son sets you free. And he loves doing that so much that he doesn't delegate it out to somebody else to do. Here, Saint so-and-so, you take care of that. Angels, why don't you set those people free? No, he does it himself. He died himself. He died his own death for you so that you would never have to die. He did that himself so that you would never have to be separated from the Father again. And it's not a one-time thing with him either, setting you free. It's personal with him. It's so personal that he came to give his life But he comes to live his life in you. He wants to live in you and set you free every moment of every day. He wants to live his life in you. He dies so that you don't have to. The sacrifice is that powerful, you see. And that's the other side of the cross. We're going to see lots of decorations, and there are some here today. Patriotic decorations and lots of symbols Let me show you a symbol that's extremely powerful. Cross. And there are two sides to this cross. You knew that, didn't you? Of course you knew that. You took sophomore sophomore geometry. You know there are two sides to this thing. There are two sides to every cross. One side to the cross we talk about a lot. And it deserves to be talked about. He sets us free. He dies for us. He helps us. He blesses us. He prepares a home in heaven for us. But there's more to the cross even than that. That's what we spend most of our time on, but there's an exciting other side to the cross. And the other side to the cross is that Jesus, He lives His life in you. Paul will say it this way, Christ in you. Christ in you. The hope of glory. He lives in you, the second person of the Trinity, the creator, the wisdom of God, the sustainer of the universe. He's living his life in you, in you. That's exciting. That's what he does when he comes to set you free. He becomes for you Christ in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, today, tomorrow, we're going to celebrate our freedom. And we should. We should. And we should thank God for our country. We should. Because I firmly believe there's none other like it. And not likely to be another like it ever again. And so we should thank God that we are in this nation. And we're part of it. And we should pray that eventually, whatever mess we're going through and whatever fog we're living through right now, that we come through it and we come around right. We should pray that way. But it's right that we celebrate our nation. And it's also right that we celebrate our freedom in Christ. Amen? That we celebrate this incredible freedom in Christ and that we're not slaves anymore to sin. Because like he said, whoever the sun sets free is free indeed. Hallelujah. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.